if a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is convinced in their mind that a particular activity is a sin, and they willingly choose, that's the key, the key idea, they, they think it's a sin and they willingly choose to act in rebellion against their conscience and do what they think is sinful, even if it's not actually a sin, that person's sinning. Yes, even if the activity is not actually a sin, if they think it is, and they still do it anyway, then for them, it is sinful. The reason is that they thought it was. They're, they're willfully rebelling against what they thought was the truth. We call this a sin against the conscience. And at its core, it's rebellion against God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the passage we studied last week, the terminology Paul used to describe this kind of activity was their conscience was defiled. And later he equates this conscious defiling with stumbling. In Romans 14, a similar passage but not quite parallel, Paul wrote these words, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. He's speaking there of food and ceremonial uncleanliness. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. I remember when I was in college, like most everybody else, I worked my way through school in Lafayette, Louisiana. I worked at the Burger Chef there. It's kind of like a Burger King. They don't have them over here. But Burger Chef, a really good place to work. I made my way up to manager or assistant manager. And one of the things that you got when you were an assistant manager was you got to get your meal free. Because I only paid us $2.05 an hour. I almost quit because they wouldn't raise me to $2.15 an hour. But that was back in a different day. But you got your meals free. After, after the shift was over, the general manager told us all, well, you can get yourself a hamburger, some fries, whatever you'd like. That's part of your remuneration. And a new guy came along. And he was an assistant manager like myself. And they forgot to tell him that he could have his meal for free. So he sees me taking my meal for free in the little break room after the shift is over. And he looks and he says, wow, okay. And he took his meal for free. And he felt really, really guilty about it because he thought he was stealing. And guess what? For him, it was stealing. He didn't know. It was not until later when I realized how guilty he felt that I said, oh, no, man, that's, that's, not, that's not wrong with that. Ask Mr. Vincent. He said, it's fine that we take our meal. That's part of our salaries to be able to take a meal. But for him, it was stealing until he realized that that it was okay for us to do that. Now, that's the principle that was a little difficult last week, I admit, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Corinth, in the first century, was a very polytheistic city. It was full of temples, full of idols. It was common practice in Corinth in the first century to sacrifice in the temples, sacrifice animals in the temples, and then later sell the meat that had been sacrificed in those temples either to meat markets for purchase and then consumption in homes or for consumption in what would be akin to temple restaurants, something along those lines. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, what Paul is doing, he's addressing a situation in Corinth that they're having a problem with this eating the meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he says there really no, is no such thing as a God with a little g. And therefore, it's not sinful in and of itself to consume meat that had been sacrificed to something that didn't exist. However, 
there were some in Corinth, like my friend, the new assistant manager, that didn't realize it was okay that we took our hamburger after the shift, that it wasn't stealing. There were some people in Corinth that didn't realize that it was okay to eat meat that had been sacrificed to a non-entity, and that became a problem. When the believer who didn't know that it was okay to eat that meat observed another believer who knew that it was okay to eat that meat eating the meat. The problem was the weaker believer, as Paul calls him in this chapter, may still be tempted to eat the meat, thinking that it's sinful, not knowing that it's okay. It's in their mind. In their mind, they thought that they were sinning, and they did it anyway. And they did it anyway because they saw someone that they looked up to, someone who in their mind was a more mature believer, doing something that they were convinced was sinful, so it's okay for me to do something that's sinful. They didn't think it was right. And that would have solved the whole problem if the more mature, more Paul calls them the more knowledgeable believer in chapter 8, if they would have just taken the time to say, hey, listen, the reason I'm eating this, it's not sinful at all. I would never do it if it was sinful. But the reason I'm eating it is because this was sacrificed to a non-entity. It's nothing. So it's, it's not a problem. If they would have just explained it, chapter 8 wouldn't have been necessary. But in Corinth, they had all kinds of problems, and it was necessary for this to be explained. But in chapter 8, as we closed last time, we saw that Paul is not so much calling out these believers that have no knowledge. That's not the real focus of chapter 8. The real focus of chapter 8, he's calling out the, the believers who have knowledge, who know that it's no problem to eat this meat that was sacrificed to a non-entity, and they eat it anyway in front of somebody that does have a problem with it. And what Paul is arguing against in Romans chapter 8 is these people exhibiting a complete lack of love, a complete selfishness. Love is selfless, not selfish. Love is directed toward the other person, not toward yourself. And so what Paul is saying in chapter 8, you people who think you have so much knowledge, well, you may have a lot of knowledge, but you're not doing anything with it. So it's really not effectively helping you at all, and you're hurting the other guy. And that's why he says in, in verse 12 of chapter 8, Thus, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against God. And then he concludes the chapter by saying this, Therefore... If food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, that I might not cause my brother to stumble. And the point is that all Christian behavior should be governed by love. There are times when certain liberties must be set aside out of love for somebody else. There are some times when we set liberties aside because of love. Most of us enjoy our liberties. I do. And we're not that excited about having to set aside something that's perfectly legitimate because there's someone in the room who doesn't think it's perfectly legitimate. I think you're probably like me. We like liberties. We like our freedom. And Paul knows that. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he uses a personal situation in his life to illustrate this principle that he taught in chapter 8 and make the whole thing come to life. In this chapter, Paul's going to outline that there are certain rights that he had as an apostle, as a servant of the Lord, and he had voluntarily set those aside 
while he ministered in Corinth. So what Paul's going to say is, this is not just theory for me. I've already done this. And then later on, as chapter 11 begins, he's going to say, be an imitator of me. And there's a reason for that. As Paul saw it, as he evaluated this church, the Corinthians were not nearly as mature in their faith as they thought they were. And he knew that if he exercised certain liberties that he had as a minister of the gospel, it may have caused them to stumble. So he lovingly refrained from exercising the liberties that he'll talk about in chapter 9. I want you to note something as we go through this chapter. He's not going to refrain from exercising his liberties with a resentful attitude. That doesn't count. He's going to refrain from exercising the liberties motivated by love and expressed in love. That's when it counts. So no resentment here on the part of the Apostle Paul. Well, what right did Paul have that he's going to illustrate this principle with? As a minister of the gospel, Paul had a right to receive support from those to whom he ministered. But in Corinth, he did not exercise that right. In Corinth, he made tents. We'll see why. The questions that are mentioned in verses 1 and 2 are structured in the Greek text in such a way as to demand a yes answer. English has this only by inference, but the Greek text tells you sometimes whether a rhetorical question should be answered yes or no. These all demand a yes answer. He begins, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Yes, Paul is free. He has certain liberties. Yes, he's an apostle. Absolutely, he's an apostle. Yes, they are his work in the Lord. And what he means by that is that in some way, either directly or indirectly, he'd been involved with presenting them the gospel of Jesus Christ and then being used as a servant of the Lord to help them to grow. And then he says, theoretically, even if somebody else could deny that I was an apostle, you sure can't deny it, not based upon our personal interaction. You had no grounds to deny that I'm an apostle. So having established these things, that he is free, that he is an apostle, and that he does have some sort of spiritual oversight over them, that he is, in a way, I don't like the term so much, but he's their spiritual father, Having established these things, Paul moves on, on to his defense, the apologia. That's where we get the word apologetics from. He moves on to his apologia of the principle of love trumping license or love trumping liberty. The Corinthians understood freedom to mean all things are lawful to me. We've studied that already. Paul's now going to redefine freedom in a way that excludes the pursuit of self-interest and takes into consideration the well-being of the other guy. And we would do well to listen to this. Freedom is great, it's wonderful, but if my freedom is going to hurt someone else, then I need to take pains to restrict the use of my freedom if I love that other person. That's the principle that we should leave here with today because love is not self-directed. It's directed outward. Love is not selfish, but it's selfless. 
Now in verses 3 through 9, really the heart of this, my defense, my apologia, to those who examine me is this. Now this is dangerous, I can tell you. When Paul says, hey, look at me, most of us don't want that. But, but he's really going to become bold in chapter 11 when he says, become imitators of me. Paul says, my defense to those who examine me is this. You want to examine me? Well, here's, I'm going to lay myself open. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Yes, we do. Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and even Cephas or Peter? That's twice he's mentioned Cephas in this letter. Well, the answer would be, yes, he does. He does have a right to take along a believing wife. Peter did. Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Now, he changes the subject slightly, which tells me that there may have been some grumbling in Corinth already about the whole financial thing. One thing I do like to see here is in our study of Acts, you remember Barnabas and Paul split the sheets after the first missionary journey. Well, this is written sometime later, and it's nice to see that Paul and Barnabas have apparently made up. And then in verse 7, who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? Soldiers don't typically serve at their own expense. Now, sometime in the ancient world, they had to supply their own armaments. Sometimes they had to bring their own food. But typically, food is supplied to an army. So they're not serving at their own expense. Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Well, very few people. It would be typical, if you're a farmer, to eat some of the produce that you produce. Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? Well, nobody. Then in verse 8, I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does the law not say these things also? Actually, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament Mosaic Law and the New Testament Gospel say these same things. And then in verse 9, For it is written in the law of Moses, this is Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. And then he says, God is not concerned about oxen, is he? The quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, is expanding upon the meaning in Deuteronomy, while remaining consistent with the message of Moses back then, and saying, just like you would not starve an ox that's working hard for you, but you would care for it, you would feed it, you would water it. It's in your best interest to do that, Paul's saying. So also, you have a responsibility to care for those who are working hard to minister to you, feeding you spiritual food. And then in verses 10 through 18, or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher ought to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much that we should reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do not we more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things that we may cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Now that's where it's all at, isn't it? He, he willingly, voluntarily set aside a right that he had to support for a bigger cause. You see, because seeing people come to Christ was far more important to the Apostle Paul than receiving support from them, than receiving an honorarium from them. 
And if receiving that honorarium was going to cause anybody at all to question the message, then he wasn't going to receive the honorarium at all. I look out there today at the landscape, and I see primarily on television, not so much on radio, but primarily on television, I see people peddling the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's offensive to me. They're selling the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is free. And Paul's going to say that here, even here in this passage. It's absolutely free. Jesus Christ did all the work. And you have some of these knuckleheads on television, some of whom have gone to jail because of the fraudulent activities that they have perpetrated upon the public, and they should be there. It's no different than any other fraud. But some people use the gospel to enrich themselves. Now that offends me. It would certainly have offended the apostle Paul. Because, see, it's by grace that we've been saved, through faith. It's a gift of God, not a result of works. Yes, any man should boast. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should never perish but have everlasting life. Some pastors, some television preachers especially, preach as though they had done all the work. And you owe the money to them. God's Holy Spirit is certainly grieved when he sees that because it's not about them. It's not about me. It's about Jesus Christ. I didn't die for any of you, but he died for all of you, every single one of you, bar none. I don't care how good you've been or how bad you've been. And sometimes people like to say, well, Bruce, you don't know what I've done. You know what my answer to that is? I don't care what you've done. It doesn't bother me. I do know that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every sin that's ever been committed on the cross. But the point is, he paid it. Paul didn't pay it. The Corinthians didn't pay it. I didn't pay it, and you didn't pay it. So there's something that's much more important than, to the Apostle Paul than just receiving a paycheck. He's not an employee of the church of Corinth. He works for God. And because God did all the work, God gets all the glory. And if it takes him setting aside certain rights that he has then so be it. I brought it up last time. I'll bring it up again because it got a reaction, and I love it when I get a reaction. Sometimes positive, sometimes negative. I have a right to drink a glass of wine, and so do you. But there may be certain circumstances when I don't have a right to drink a glass of wine. By the way, Jesus made wine. It was perfect wine when he made it, and he drank wine. So for a Christian to argue that you can't drink wine is to argue against something that Jesus did, which is to make him sinful, which is to blow the whole thing right out of the water. But I do say there are certain restrictions. If I'm an alcoholic, I shouldn't have any alcoholic beverage at all. I shouldn't even have a sip of wine. Now, that's a health concern. But if there are people at my dinner party that really, truly believe in their heart that drinking wine's a sin, I should refrain. And I know people like that. They're wonderful friends. But if it's going to hinder a presentation of the gospel, then I'm not going to do it. Let's say my friends that come over to that dinner party don't know Jesus Christ. Or that they do know Jesus Christ and they're very, very infantile in their faith. And they see me doing something that they think is sinful. Are they going to listen to anything else that I say after that? No, it's going to blow it straight out of the water. Paul doesn't want that. So in verse 12, if others share the right over you, do we not more? In other words, if others have a right to receive an honorarium from you, instead of having to make tents at night while, or during the day while we preach at night. Nevertheless, we did not use this right. If others have the right, don't we more? Nevertheless, we didn't use this right. But we endure all things. That's an interesting phrase that's going to come up again in chapter 13 when he describes love. 
That's a clue that this is love that he's expressing. We endure all things that we may cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. What was important to the Apostle Paul? Not his own personal comfort. If it was, he would have never done what he did. What was important to him was the people that got the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it's a matter of life and death. It's, it's a matter of eternal life and eternal death. And so that was important to him. If he had to set aside a right temporarily and inconvenience himself, he was willing to do it. And isn't that love? Don't we do it in all other areas of our life? You know, when my kids were little and Cindy was tired, which didn't happen all that often, but, and they, they would make a little noise at night, I sacrificed my sleep, which I felt like I needed. I had to work all day the next day, but I lovingly sacrificed my sleep to rock Marcia and Bruce and David, and I don't regret a minute of it. Not a minute of it. And even today, I have a little grandson, and it's a blessing. It's a, one of the greatest blessings I have right now, but he's staying with me for a little while. About a year and a half old, just got his first tricycle yesterday. He's trucking around the house, and I, I just absolutely love it. And those of you that have either children or grandson or grandchildren know what I'm talking about. And there's been times when he's been sick. It didn't bother me at all to get up in the middle of the night and, and to rock him or to feed him or to give him the tile, a little baby tile or whatever it was. I didn't resent that for a minute because I loved him. I love him. And Paul's saying he didn't resent for a minute not taking an honorarium and having to work his tail off all day so he could preach all night because he loved these people. And he wanted to see them have something that he has. Eternal life. So the principles affirmed. Paul had every right to expect that the Corinthians would take care of him physically or financially, if you prefer, as he had taken care of them spiritually. He uses some more Old Testament or Hebrew Bible examples here. Do you not know, in verse 13, do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple? He's speaking specifically of Levitical priests here. And those who attend regularly to the altar have their share of the altar. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Remember when he sent out those missionaries, the first missionaries? He said, don't take anything with you. Not a thing. The people that you give the gospel to should appreciate it enough to support you. That's one of the references here. That's from Luke chapter 10. Verse 15, but I have used none of these things, and I'm not writing these things, that it may be done so in my case. I love it that he said it because he gives me the opportunity to say it right now. I'm not asking you for any money. A lot of pastors hate to preach this passage because they think that it appears self-serving. And that's what Paul's saying here. Don't get me wrong. I'm not bringing up, up this illustration so that you'll remunerate me for, my, for the service that I've done here. And then he says, it'd be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. I would rather die before you could say that I'm doing this for the money. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I'm under compulsion. For woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. Have you ever had something that you felt like you were under compulsion to do? Not from outside, but I'm talking about from inside. Something that you were so driven to do. Many of you have. Many of you got into athletics and you're driven to excel. You're dri driven to win. Others in business, I'm driven to have the best possible business I can. Or in a profession, I'm driven to be the best possible attorney that I can be. Or CPA or doctor or teacher. 
I'm driven to be the best parent that I can possibly be. That's a compulsion. That kind of, it's got to come from the inside out. It can't come from the outside in. Things, sometimes motivation can come from the outside in, but not the kind of motivation Paul's talking about here. If I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. Why does he have nothing to boast of? Because all he is is a messenger. Christ did all the work. He's the one that suffered. Not Paul. For I'm under compulsion. For woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. In verse 17, it's a, a bit confusing on the surface. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. What he's saying, if, if I do this in accordance with my will, if I do this from the outside motivation, I have a reward. It's kind of like the reward that Jesus talked about with the Pharisees. People who wanted everybody to know how religious they were. And so when they would walk across the street in ancient Jerusalem, they would stop in the middle of the street. So everybody around them would watch them pray. If it was time to pray, they'd literally stop in the middle of the street and have everybody go around them. And people would say, oh, that must be a godly person. And Jesus comes along and says, no, not really. Not really. They want everybody else to think how wonderful they are. Well, they just got their reward. Their reward was in this life, everybody else realizes just how wonderful you are. But when he says, but if against my will, in other words, this is not me, this is a compulsion that's coming from the inside out, then I have a stewardship entrusted to me, an oikonomia, a stewardship, something that's positive. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel, some television evangelists listen to this, without charge. No send in $1,000 in and you'll get $10,000 back. None of that. Fraud without charge, so as to make full use of my right in the gospel. Back to Paul's illustration. If you want to get the most out of the ox, take care of the ox. He had a right to receive support from the church in Corinth, so he wouldn't be distracted from his primary objective and have to rob time from that primary objective, from that ministry, to spend time earning a living. That is a principle that's not just established here. It's well established Scripturally, for the first seven years of my ministry, I was bivocational. The church was not in a position to support me to the degree that it was necessary to take care of my family. They deeply wanted to, but simply could not. I admit, those early days were a challenge. Not being able to focus upon one thing, to have to split energies, so to speak. But the Lord got us through it. Four years after the church was planted, I found myself sitting in an attorney's office with pen in hand and bankruptcy papers in front of me. And I had read through the papers. The attorney who was a Christian was explaining to me that there's you know, nothing immoral about following this procedure, this lawful procedure. And I thought, and I thought, and I thought, and I agonized over it. And I, as the more I was thinking, I thought, I'm agonizing over this too much. It can't be the right thing. I don't have any peace about it. Now, I'm not saying, again, I know some of you have had to go through that procedure. I'm not saying there's anything immoral about it at all. But, but for me, at that time, I didn't have a peace about it. So I got up, and I, I paid my, my friend the the money that he was owed for growing up these papers for me. I left the papers with him, and I, and I didn't declare. 
And I'm glad that I didn't because the Lord supplied my needs in a, in a marvelous way. Thank you very much, Lord. But in those days, in those same days, I'll never forget because of the timing. There was a man who, who attended our church, and in those, at that time we had probably 20, 25 people coming. And so when you have 20 or 25 people there, you're, you're really happy to have a new family there because it pretty much almost raised the percentage of your church by quite a bit, just the one family. So I was real happy to have him there. And he seemed like he was paying good attention in the sermon. At least he was intense during the sermon. But I realized the intensity wasn't necessarily a compliment when he came up afterwards. And he said, I understand they pay you. <laughs> I said, well, yes, I, the church gives me an honorarium of $300 a month. He said, well, I'm not going to come to this church then. He said, really? I said, why would you say something like that? He said, because I don't believe that's biblical. Ministers should work for free. They shouldn't be paid. They should be bivocational, just like the Apostle Paul in Corinth. Before I had an opportunity to explain to him, he's totally misunderstanding 1 Corinthians 8. It's arguing against people like him, not for him. He stormed off. I don't know if you remember that or not, but he stormed off and never came back. Actually, there's only one person here that was here that day, but um, he stormed off and never came back before I could dialogue with him. And then in 2001, right before 9-11, I'll never forget that. It was August of 2001. The church was finally in a position to support us in such a way as to allow me to totally focus upon ministry and not have to split my energies. And believe me, for that I am truly, truly grateful. My family is as well. The reason I bring all that up is to put you at ease this morning. Like I said, many pastors skip this or hate teaching it. Because it can come across as self-serving, and I don't want that at all. I don't look at it that way. I must tell you, with all honesty, I can say I have never asked for any financial benefit from Pine Valley Bible Church. Never once have I had to. Never once. The church has always been extremely gracious to us when the means were available. I don't preach for money. And Paul didn't preach for money. He served our Lord as I do because we love the Lord. And because we love the Lord, we love those who are his children. And that includes every single person here today. I love you. Paul couldn't envision himself doing anything else in life. He was compulsed to do what he did. And I know how he feels. Because the Lord was first in his life, and he wanted the Lord to be first in other people's lives as well. He voluntarily set aside the right to receive support from the Corinthians and made tents on the side to support himself because he didn't want the Corinthians, who were much less mature than the people to whom I'm speaking to today. And I'm not saying that to give you the big head, but I'm saying the church in Corinth had a bunch of serious problems that you don't have. But he does this, he doesn't exercise a right that he had in Corinth so as not to have anyone in Corinth disparage his ministry by saying that Paul's in it for the money. So he just set it aside. Paul loved God and he loved the Corinthians so much that he didn't want to hinder their spiritual growth even one, one little bit by accepting funds from them. Now it's true, Paul did accept funds from other churches. He accepted funds from Philippi more than once in his ministry. 
But apparently we have to understand the church at Philippi was a more mature church in their faith than the church at Corinth was. So he never accepted money from the Corinthians, at least not for himself. Later on he's going to take up an offering for the poor in Jerusalem, but not for himself. He's not going to accept any money from them until they'd grown to the point where they understood their responsibility. And then in verses 19 through 23, as we close today, Paul's going to pour out his heart with respect to his feelings about service. Verse 19, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all that I might win more. And to the Jews I became a Jew that I might win Jews, and to those who are under the law as under the law, though myself not being under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. Now he's not talking about hypocrisy here, he's talking about love. That's all he's talking about is love. To those who are without law as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those who were without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I became all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Again, this is not some sort of moral relativism. He's speaking about love here. He's speaking about flexibility and things that are not essential in life. And I do all things for the sake of the gospel, that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Not compromising the truth, but exercising flexibility in the non-essentials in order to gain a hearing. Last year when I was in England, before I presented a message there, there was a meeting of the staff. It was a a very old church. It was a really neat experience. But there was a meeting of the staff, and the senior pastor didn't do it, but one of the associate pastors, I was dressed like I am today, he said, you need to lose the coat and tie. He didn't say it very nicely. And the senior pastor was quite offended that he would speak to a guy that was guest speaking at their church that way. He said, now, now, listen, if Bruce wants to wear a coat and tie, let him wear it. And I said, no, no, that's okay. If if it's better for you that I lose the coat and tie, I'll lose the coat and tie. The next day I met with the senior pastor. He said, listen, I just want to explain why our associate pastor seemed so rude last night. I said, oh, you don't have to. But he said, no, no, I'd like to explain it. He said, in England, in Bristol, to, and the people that we're ministering to, these are people that typically, typically came from the lower classes. And when they see a coat and tie in church, they think high church. And in England, in the past, historically, sometimes high church has oppressed the low church, has oppressed the lower classes. So he was just trying to help you. He just didn't really know how to go about it. I said, no problem. It's, not a, it's a flexibility issue with me. That's why Paul is saying these things that he's saying here, be, becoming all things to all men. In Kazakhstan, my first major, actually my second, but my second major overseas trip, I learned on Monday or Tuesday of that week that on Friday I was going to be honored at a dinner with a goat's head, a sheep's head, and that it would be my honor to be able to consume the sheep's head. And I thought, I'm the, and by the way, I am, my mama spoiled me, and I love it. I love her for doing that, but I'm the most finicky eater that you have ever seen in your life. I mean, if I'm, if I'm served a hamburger with lettuce and tomatoes and ketchup and all that on it, I'll, I'll just really sweetly try to get rid of it. But a sheep's head wasn't going to work. I mean, I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how am I, how am I going to not gag in front of these people. And I didn't want to because I just preached this five-day pastor's conference to all these folks that were there. I didn't want to blow it by gagging at their wonderful dish that they had prepared for me. I got there early and I saw the lady preparing it. It was outside in one of those dotches that, that they have there. And I'm just thinking, oh Lord, 
<laughs> Something's got to happen. And, and finally, when it came time, they, they presented with great fanfare. There's about a dozen people around this round table. They came and presented with great fanfare this sheep's head. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I thought, too. And it, it just came to me. It was a miracle. <laughs> and because and everybody was really looking at me. And by the way, the eyes were the first thing that were supposed to be consumed. And I thought, there's no way. There's just no way. No way. On God's green earth, am I going to be able to eat those eyes and, and make it through this dinner? And I saw our hostess, who also had to happen to be one of my interpreters. We were at her home. I saw her just staring at those eyes. And I said, you know what? You would do me a great honor <laughs> if you would consume the eyes. And she said, really? <laughs> so she spoke English. I said, absolutely. It would be a great honor to me. And so they passed it over there, and she just went. I couldn't watch, but she consumed. And then they passed it back to me, and I saw the rest of the people looking at me. I said, you know what? You would do me a great honor if you would consume, and I won't say which parts, but it wasn't the flesh. And they did, and I couldn't look. And when it finally got to me, the only thing that was left was a little bit of the meat on the back of the neck, and I, I consumed that. But out of love, I knew I had to try. I mean, if it came to me, I was going to do it because of this passage. Thank you, Paul. Appreciate it very much. You had to say I became all things to all people. And I had read it, so I was without excuse. <laughs> or something a little more mild, but in a place like Lagos, Nigeria, the men that come usually walk or they ride three to a motorcycle to these pastors' conferences. Some have taken a week to get there because they had to change buses so many times. And they come and they show up in the best clothes they've got. Usually it's a suit. And if, and if I was objective and if you were objective, you would, you would look out at these men. And, and the suits and the shoes that they come with would probably not even be distributed at, say, like the local Goodwill around the corner from our home. It wouldn't be distributed there. But it's the best they've got. And they've, they've traveled a long way to be there. But it's hot. I mean, it's, it's hot. There's certainly no air conditioning. That's, that's a joke. We have enough electricity to have sound magnification, but that's all. But you love these people. And I, I don't know, you know, I, I, have, I have perspired through shirts before. But have you ever perspired all the way through your, your coat? It's not easy to do. But I'll tell you what, I'm going to take it off for a million bucks. Not when they have theirs on. You see, in England, I took it off because that was part of their cultural thing. But in Nigeria, it was part of their cultural thing to leave it on. So I left it on. It was a minor inconvenience. In, in fact, it ruined a couple suits. But so what? I wanted them to hear what I had to say because it's a life-changing message. So that's what Paul means when he says, I became all things to all people. He doesn't mean I'm going to say what anybody just wants to hear. No, the message doesn't change, but the way it's presented might very well change. You might have to eat a sheep's head. Or you might have to keep the coat on. Or you might have to lose the coat. All those things are not essential. What's essential is the message of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul wants. What's essential is the spiritual growth of the Corinthian believers. And that's what he wanted. So there are times when certain liberties, certain rights, if you will, should be set aside because we love the other guy. Or the other girl. In chapter 8, Paul introduced that principle. And in chapter 9, he expands and illustrates that same principle. 